Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Every Christmas for a number of years, we gather for what we've called our family Christmas service. I mentioned it earlier. Dads, moms, all the kids are here in the sanctuary. We read through the uh, account of Christ's birth from the Gospels of Matthew and Luke in chronological order. There's no comment. It's simply the reading of the biblical account of Christ's birth interspersed with singing of Christmas hymns and songs. And that takes place again tonight at 6 p.m., and I hope you'll all join us here. But this morning, in anticipation of this evening's service, we're going to go through the same verses, and I'm going to be making brief comment. We won't be able to comment on everything, obviously, or we'd be here till 6 p.m. this evening. But just try to hit some of the high points. So this is going to be more of a running commentary, what's called a running commentary, as opposed to an in-depth exposition. And for most of us, this will not be anything new, just the simple yet deeply profound account of the incarnation and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And hopefully, uh, it'll be encouraging, very encouraging, as we're reminded of the biblical truths surrounding Christ's birth. And this is important because when it comes to Christmas, uh, many people, including many in the church, don't know what is biblical and what's not because of all of the myths and fables that have been fabricated over the years. What many people believe about Christmas, the Christmas story is more uh, a product of superstition, legends, and a lack of biblical truth. And so it's always good to come to the original source, the Word of God, for the truth of the Christmas story, and remind ourselves of what Christmas is all about. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, and then also open to Luke chapter 2, and just hold your finger there. We're going to go back and forth between these two Gospels. And though we're not going to be reading it this evening, I want to begin briefly mentioning the the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Though it's a genealogy, there is certainly a lot that could be said about it, but time doesn't allow. But suffice it to say, the genealogy in Matthew traces Jesus' lineage on Joseph's side, and the genealogy in Luke is Mary's side, and together... They prove that Jesus is a descendant of King David and the rightful heir to the throne. But the genealogy in Matthew is also much more than that. It's also a great illustration of the grace of God. Because in it, we, we, we see the people the Lord chose to be his ancestors, uh, and, and, it, and, it, and it manifests or it indicates to us just how great God's grace truly is. The genealogy of Jesus is filled with people who had skeletons in their closets. You know, things in their past that they'd like to forget, painful experiences at the hands of others, and and the pain of being an outcast. Everyone in this genealogy shared something in common. Whether they were relatively good people or notoriously bad, they were all sinners in need of a Savior. But they're still part of the list. Because the lineage of Jesus is nothing but grace from beginning to end. And God's grace is especially seen in the fact that he included five women in the genealogy of his son. Now that probably doesn't sound strange to us today, but it was startling as a Jewish genealogy. Because in Jesus' day, a woman was was not a person, she was a thing. She was seen as a possession of her father or her husband, and they could do with her as they pleased. She was completely under her husband's power if she was married. So if you were a Jewish man, it was bad enough that there were five women in this genealogy, but what was even worse is that three of the women were Gentiles, the fourth married to a Gentile, and three were notorious 
for their immorality. So this list is obviously not fabricated. Because no religious Jew would have put together a list like this if he were trying to impress his readers with the pedigree of the Messiah. And the inclusion of these women in the genealogy of Jesus is just a gospel treasure because they were among the most notorious women in biblical history. Four of the women were outcasts, four of the five. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Three of them, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, were Gentiles. The fourth, Bathsheba, was married to a Gentile, and therefore considered a Gentile herself. And three were notorious for their immorality, Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba. But they're still part of the list. It's as if the Lord went out of his way here to draw attention to these women whose very names call to mind scandalous things. Why? Well, to put his grace on display. And these women are in the lineage, not, not because of their worthiness, but rather because of their unworthiness. God put them into the lineage of Christ to show that the gospel came to people who were outcasts, the worst of sinners, to show the greatness and the scope of his grace, to show that he overcomes and forgives sin and uses sinful, soiled people for his great purposes in history. The fifth woman in the genealogy in in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, is Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. We read there in verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Mary did not have uh, any of the natural disqualifications of the other women in Matthew's genealogy. She was not a Canaanite or a Moabite. Mary was not guilty of sexual immorality as Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba. No doubt Mary was a deeply devout and religious person. But like everyone else in the genealogy, in fact, like every person who has ever been born, with the exception of Jesus, Mary was a sinner who needed a Savior. And yet God, in his wonderful grace, chose her. And God didn't have to do that. But he chose Mary. The the sovereignty of God's grace was manifest in choosing her just as it was in bringing the others into the royal line of Christ. And God in his grace chose a sinner to be the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's grace. That's abundant grace. And so before Matthew ever begins the story of Christ's birth, he tells us why he came. The King of Grace left the throne of grace to bring the light of saving grace into the darkness of this sin-sick world. He came to bring grace and truth. Jesus not only uh, came not only for, but through sinners. You see, Christmas is about the birth of the Son of God who came to save his people from their sins, to reconcile God and, and sinful man. And that same amazing grace is available today to to any and all who will humble themselves and turn to Christ and put their faith and trust in Him alone for salvation. Well, looking back at Matthew chapter 1, look at verse 18. And we read there, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So we're told that Mary and Joseph were betrothed. Now for the betrothal to take place, a contract, a literal contract that promised marriage was drawn up. And it was a binding contract, and once you were betrothed, you were considered legally married. In fact, the betrothal could only be broken by a divorce. And the betrothal period usually lasted about 12 months, during which time the husband and wife lived apart. There was little, if any, social contact between them, and there was absolutely no physical contact. And this betrothal period was was a kind of probationary period, done for the protection of the bride and groom. It was a time of testing uh, to prove their fidelity. If the girl was pregnant, it became evident during this period, and it was dealt with severely. And of course, you know, 
It was during the betrothal period that Mary was found to be with child. And we know from Scripture, Mary was faithful to Joseph. She was a virgin who had never had sexual relations with a man. She was with child from the Holy Spirit. And someone might ask, well, how does that happen? Well, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But I know this, it was not a problem for the sovereign almighty God who created the heavens and the earth from nothing with only a word. And Luke in his gospel tells us how Mary found out that she was going to have a child. So if you'll turn over to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, we read, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. In the sixth month refers to Elizabeth's six-month of pregnancy. So in the sixth month of Elizabeth, Mary's cousin's pregnancy, and of course Elizabeth, Elizabeth was the mother of John the Baptist, we read, Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Pay attention to that last verse the last sentence in verse 27. And the virgin's name was Mary. Here we have the testimony of the Holy Spirit in Scripture that Mary was in fact a virgin. And we read in verse 28, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, we can only imagine what must have been going through Mary's mind at this moment. I mean, it's not every day that you see an angel, especially the angel Gabriel. And we read in verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? So we not only have the Holy Spirit's testimony that Mary is a virgin here, we have Mary's own testimony to the fact that she was a virgin. And the angel answered her in verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, we don't know a lot about Mary, but it's obvious from verse 38 that she was submitted to God and his will. You know, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word, she said. And, you know, we read that and we think, wow, that that Mary, she was really something else. But I don't think we fully understand the full impact of of what Mary said. She knew that her story would be questioned. I mean, Joseph himself doubted it at first. In fact, only a visit from an angel convinced him. Mary knew that her reputation would be tarnished, and it was. The New Testament tells us that Jesus' enemies more than once implied that he was illegitimate. Mary also knew the penalty for adultery was death. Yet in light of these daunting realities, Mary said, I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. I mean, she could have said, Gabriel, uh, thanks, but no thanks. (laughs) You know, I don't want any part of that. But she didn't. Mary made a habit of submitting to the Lord in everything. And in that, she is a great example for us. She's an example to us of 
of humble, obedient submission. Even when she knew that there would be a great cost to her personally. I mean, the scandal of it all would linger over her like a cloud for many, many years. But Mary didn't doubt. Mary did not hesitate. She believed what God said, and as evidence of her faith and trust, she humbly submitted to the Lord and to his will. Let's read on in Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now let me just stop there for a moment. The first person on earth to rejoice at the news of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was a baby in the womb. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary's response to Elizabeth, she said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to, the, to his offspring forever. You know, as we read what is called Mary's Magnificat, we see her godly character. I mean, it's, it's clearly evident because as she worships the Lord, her, her words are filled with, just filled with Old Testament allusions and, and quotations, revealing that Mary's heart and mind were saturated with the Word of God. And we read in verse 56, And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. And so after staying with Elizabeth, her cousin, for three months, or probably until John the Baptist was born, Mary then returned to Nazareth. So she's now approximately three months pregnant. She would soon start to show, and this meant Joseph had to be told. The scriptures don't tell us about that conversation. And we can only imagine how apprehensive Mary must have been. We don't know a lot about Joseph. He was a carpenter, no doubt a very hard-working man, not a wealthy man by any stretch of the imagination. We know he was godly because the verse tells us he was a just man, which means an upright or righteous man, which indicates Joseph was a true believer in God and had been declared righteous, and he was a man who carefully obeyed God's law. And so God chose two godly people in, in Mary and Joseph, godly young people, because they were probably in their teens. In fact, Mary could have been as young as 13 or 14 years old. That was not unusual in that day. Well, what did Joseph think when Mary told her, or told him, of her pregnancy? Well, he obviously thought that Mary had been unfaithful. And I say this because although we don't know what Joseph said, we are told what he intended to do. Look at verse 19 now in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. We see Joseph's intentions. We read there, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. When Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, no doubt he was shocked, just utterly stunned. I mean, absolutely devastated by the betrayal. And we can only imagine. 
And not only that, he knew the law, that stoning was a penalty God prescribed for adultery. I mean, he was stunned, he was devastated. But being a godly man, Joseph knew, and being a godly man, Joseph knew he could not go through with the marriage. But he was also a righteous man, and as a righteous man, he was also merciful. And therefore, he didn't want to publicly humiliate Mary, and he didn't want to demand her death. Because by that time, during the time of Christ, the Jews had gotten away from uh, always stoning someone guilty for adultery. Joseph wanted to protect Mary. And so he decided to put her away or divorce her secretly. And so we can see that God made no mistake when he chose Joseph. So that was his intention. He was going to divorce her quietly and get on with his life. But we read now in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 25, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew tells us, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, verse 24, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And so Joseph took Mary, who was a little over three months pregnant, as his wife, but we're told he did not know her. It means that he had no physical relations with her until after Jesus had been born. And so after taking Mary as his wife, the young couple waited for the day the child would be born. And you wonder... If Joseph and Mary, it's obvious Mary knew the scriptures. You wonder if they knew of the messianic prophecy of, the, of Micah, which said, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. It's a prophecy uh, declaring that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. And you wonder if they knew about that prophecy. And if they knew about it, were they wondering how in the world are we going to get there? Now, whether or not they knew God's son would be born in Bethlehem really didn't make any difference because God had already set in motion the events which would lead to the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. Back in Luke chapter 2 now, we read about the events leading up to the birth in Bethlehem. If you'll look at Uh, Verses 1 to 5 of Luke chapter 2. And we read there, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And so Caesar, wanting to show his power and dominion over the Roman Empire, issued a decree for a census to be taken. Everyone was to be registered for the purpose of taxation. And this meant everyone must return to the city of their ancestry. Bethlehem was the city of David, and so every living descendant of David had to return to Bethlehem along with every other family whose roots were there. And so this meant Joseph, a descendant of David, must take Mary to Bethlehem to be registered. Bethlehem was just a small uh, town located in the hill country, about five to six miles from Jerusalem. And the word Bethlehem means house of bread. 
You know, what a fitting place for Jesus, the bread of life, to be born. Now we think, well, no big deal. They just, you know, traveled down to Bethlehem and, uh, you know, got on with the program. But from Nazareth to Bethlehem was a long, arduous journey of more than 70 miles. And remember, they're walking, perhaps riding on a donkey. So we're talking about days of travel. I mean, no, no easy trip, especially for an expectant mother. And so after several difficult days of travel, they arrived in Bethlehem, which was overflowing with people who were coming in from all over to be registered. So Bethlehem would have just been, uh, I mean, extremely overcrowded with people and, and animals. And when Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem, they were not greeted and welcomed by the town fathers. They weren't given the key to the city. (laughs) They weren't given the VIP suite, that's for sure. In fact, there was no place for them in the inn. And apparently, no matter how much Joseph asked and begged, no doubt pointing to his pregnant wife, trying to evoke some sympathy, there was no place for them to stay. You know, often when people think of an inn, they read, oh, well, there's no room for them in the inn. So they they think, well, you know, they're thinking along the terms of a hotel, uh, something along the lines of what we have today, though obviously it would be a little more rustic. Not at all. (laughs) We mustn't think of an inn in those days like we would think of a hotel today. The accommodations for travelers uh, in Bethlehem were primitive, to say the least. An inn in those days could have been anything from what we would call a boarding house to a lean-to. In fact, one commentator said that an eastern inn was the crudest of arrangements. Typically, he said, it was a series of stalls built on the inside of an enclosure which opened into a common yard where the animals were kept. All the innkeeper provided was feed for the animals and a fire to cook on. And he suggested it, it was probably in this common courtyard where all these little stalls uh, were facing and opened up into where travelers, animals were tied and fed that Mary gave birth to Jesus. Now maybe it was a common courtyard. Maybe it was in a corral under a lean-to uh, for animals. Maybe it was a cave used as a stable. The fact of the matter is, we don't know what it was like for sure because the Bible doesn't tell us. But wherever it was, it was a place where they kept livestock. And we know this because Mary laid him in a feed trough. And what we do know for certain is there was no place for Joseph and Mary, no place for them to stay. And we read in verses 6 and 7 in Luke chapter 2, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And so Mary gave birth to Jesus in Bethlehem and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, strips of of cloth, and, and laid him in a manger, a feed trough. And let's not think that Jesus was born on, on nice, fresh straw in a well-kept you know, county fair stable. He wasn't. It was the worst of conditions. There was sweat and pain and and blood and and cries as Mary delivered. The ground was cold and hard. There was the smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and wet straw. And as far as we know, Mary had no one to help her deliver the baby except Joseph, if you can imagine. And Joseph probably cried as as much as Mary did, seeing her pain and their poverty, the people's indifference, just the humiliation of it all, the the stench of animals and manure, and, and his own sense of utter helplessness. I mean, no doubt he felt shame at not being able to provide for his young Mary on the night of her delivery. I mean, all of that would make a man either swear or cry. And I think Joseph probably cried. And as one man said, his trembling 
Carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood, his little arms waving as he gasped and cried as he came into this world. And Mary, no doubt, with trembling hands, wrapped her newborn son, the son of God, in swaddling cloths and, and laid him in the manger. I mean, talk about a lonely birth. The Son of God was born in Bethlehem, fulfilling prophecy, but no one was there to greet them when they arrived. No one was there to help them. All of Bethlehem, it seems, was too busy to notice or to care. And that sounds real familiar, doesn't it? Especially this time of year. Because sometimes we are so consumed with activities that keep us overly busy. You know, this time of year, it's the shopping and the decorating and the food and the cooking and, and the parties and, and all of that, which there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But the problem is that we become so preoccupied with the holiday that we miss what Christmas is all about. I mean, we're so busy and so harried that, that Christmas almost becomes a burden. And it's anything but the joyful time of celebrating the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ that it should be. I mean, we have to keep reminding ourselves that Christmas is about God humbling himself and becoming a man. I mean, think of it. I mean, the infinite became an infant. The eternal God laid aside his glory and stepped out of eternity into time. John said it this way in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, this is the wonder of the incarnation. That the one who looked directly into the face of his Father without mediation and who dwelt with his Father, he has become flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, this is almost an unbelievable thing that God did for us in, in his Son. I mean, Christ became what he was not. In the, in the greatest act of condescension the world has ever and will ever see, the eternal God in the person of the Son humbled himself and willingly stepped out of eternity into time. He, he condescended to a degree that, that we cannot even begin to fathom. And he did all of this to become a man that he might live among us. The Word became flesh. I mean, those four words express the reality that in the incarnation, God took on humanity. You see, it's not the birth of Jesus that was miraculous. No, his birth wasn't miraculous at all. His birth was completely natural, like the birth of any other baby who's ever been born. And it was just as uncomfortable and painful for Mary as it's been for every woman who has ever had a baby. What is miraculous is Jesus' conception. And the Word of God affirms that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. His conception was a sovereign act of God as the eternal Word of God became flesh. Real human flesh Real human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary. I mean, think of it. God the Son spent his first nine months on earth as a preborn baby, fully alive, fully human, fully God. And then he was born of the Virgin Mary at Bethlehem. And it was the humblest of beginnings. His first bed was a feed trough. There was no little drummer boy. Not at all. The animals didn't come to life like animated Disney characters and sing. <laughs> Jesus was born where livestock was kept. It smelled like livestock. It was anything but sanitary. And the Lord's birth could not have been in more humble surroundings. But you see, that is the immeasurable gift of Christmas. Jesus Christ, God's own Son, gave up His glory, wealth, and privilege to live as Emmanuel, God with us, so that he might save us from our sin. The Son of God was born in Bethlehem, but all of Bethlehem missed the first Christmas. And if it wasn't for God revealing the birth of his Son to some shepherds, it would have went by totally unnoticed by anyone. 
We read in Luke 2 now, verses 8 to 20, how the angels announced Jesus' birth. Notice. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I want you to look back at verse 13 and notice what it says. There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying. Means declaring. They weren't singing. They were declaring, they were proclaiming glory to God in the highest. Not singing, but declaring, saying. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So in verses 17 and 18, we're told the shepherds made known what was told them about Jesus. And all those who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But you know what I find so astonishing? We're not told of anyone going to see Jesus for themselves. They heard, they wondered, in other words, they they marveled about it. But as far as we know from the testimony of Scripture, no one went to investigate if these things were true. There was no interest. You know, people today will gladly sing about the baby Jesus. I mean, they don't mind. Nobody minds celebrating the birth of a baby. But they don't want to hear about Jesus Christ, the Lord. They don't want to hear about Christ, the Savior. Oh, they love the Christmas holiday. But they do not love the Christ of Christmas. They enjoy the Christmas celebration, but they have no interest whatsoever in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as far as we know from the biblical record, no one, no one, the shepherds told, went to see Jesus for themselves. And now we have the events immediately following uh, the birth. If you look at Luke chapter 2, verse 21, through 24. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time had come for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. A Jewish woman who had a son was considered ceremonially unclean for 40 days. I mean, twice that if she had a daughter, according to Leviticus 12. After that time, she was to offer a sacrifice of a lamb and a dove or a pigeon, according to Leviticus 12. But if she was poor, she could offer either two doves or two pigeons. Mary's sacrifice of two doves or or pigeons indicates that she and Joseph were in fact very poor. So 40 days after Jesus' birth, they came to the temple in Jerusalem to offer the prescribed sacrifices and to dedicate Jesus, their firstborn son, according to the law of Moses. 
And as they did, they had an encounter with two different people, Simeon and Anna. Look at verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother, Mary and Joseph, marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And then they had an encounter with Anna, verses 36 through 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Even after Simeon's prophecy in the temple and Anna's speaking to people about Jesus, again, we're not told that anyone came and inquired about him. Maybe they did, but we're not told that anyone inquired. But God revealed Jesus' birth to others who traveled many, many miles to see him. We go back to Matthew's gospel now, chapter 2. There in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, we read, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Wise men came from the east. And we've all seen the the Christmas cards and, and the manger scenes that depict them as three kings on camels. But the fact of the matter is we don't know how many wise men there were because the Bible doesn't say. The idea of three wise men likely comes from the fact that Matthew mentions three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But we don't know how many of them there were. Who were they? Well, these wise men were called magi, which that's translated wise men. The magi were men who had great knowledge of science, agriculture, mathematics, history, the occult, including sorcery. They were also astronomers and studied astrology. Their religious and political influence was such that they became the most powerful and prominent group of advisors in the Medo-Persian and Babylonian empires, often referred to as wise men. And these men determined who would be king. I mean, they were literally kingmakers who approved and crowned the Persian kings. And so they were very, very powerful men. And these kingmakers from the east probably learned about the true and the living God and the Messiah from none other than Daniel. Because some 600 years earlier, 600 years before Christ, Daniel was put in charge of the Magi or the wise men who thought very highly of Daniel because he was responsible for saving their lives when they were unable to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And many commentators agree that because of Daniel's love for God and his knowledge of the Scriptures, that he most certainly would have shared with the Magi his knowledge of God, the Messiah, and of the Messiah's coming. This knowledge was evidently passed down through the Magi for hundreds of years. And so it is highly probable that God used Daniel to share the news of the Messiah with the Magi in preparation for his son's eventual birth in Bethlehem. And so these wise men from the east came looking for the one who had been born king of the Jews. And they began asking around Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. I mean, they knew he had been born. God had revealed to them. He gave them a sign. They had seen his star. Now, was it a literal star? Again, we don't know. The Greek and Hebrew words for star were used figuratively to represent any great brilliance or radiance. And the wise men could have seen God's blazing glory, which the shepherds had seen, only it appeared to them as a star. But whatever it was, it appeared to them in the east, and they traveled to Jerusalem to find this king who had been born. But, but they could find no one to give them any answers. And finally, word of this got back to Herod. We read in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod and the people, in fact, all Jerusalem, it says, were troubled. It means agitated, unsettled. It means uh, fearful in mind, terrified. Now, there was nothing unusual or troubling about three men traveling on camels. So there wasn't, I mean, we know that there weren't three men. Why then were they so disturbed? Well, one historian tells us the Magi traveled on Persian horses with a thousand men armed cavalry and servants. Men on camels, a few men on camels don't trouble Herod and all Jerusalem. But they very certainly would have been disturbed at the sight of a huge entourage traveling with the Magi, the kingmakers from the east. And those in Jerusalem were probably also afraid of what Herod in his rage would do. And he certainly uh, didn't waste any time in taking action. Verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And so Herod, knowing where the child was to be born, secretly called the wise men to try to find out when they had seen his star because he wanted to determine exactly how old the child was. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Of course, Herod had absolutely no desire to worship the Lord Jesus. Rather, he wanted to kill him. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So God directed the wise men right to the place where the child was. The star, or whatever it was, reappeared to them and stood over the place where Jesus was. Now it's possible that this star, or whatever this radiant light was, it's possible that it was only visible to the wise men. Otherwise, everyone else in Jerusalem and all along the way would have seen it as well. And Herod would have been able to easily find where Jesus was located. Verse 10, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. The verse indicates to us that at this point, Joseph and Mary were living in a house in Bethlehem. You see, it's believed that Jesus is anywhere from six months to two years old at this point. That's why Herod uh, wanted to determine when they saw the star. He's wanting to know how old the child was. And he was anywhere from six months to two years old at this point. Which means the wise men were not there at the same time the shepherds were. I mean, so much for the manger scenes showing three wise men along with the shepherds worshiping the baby as he lay in the manger. The wise men came much later, six months to two years later. And they came seeking a king. And when they saw him, they fell down. It means to fall on the ground, to fall prostrate. They, uh, you know, all they saw was a baby. I mean, think of it. All they saw was a baby needing his mother's care. 
But they believed him to be the king of the Jews, and they fell down and worshipped him. The kingmakers fell on their faces before the infant king and worshipped him. That's how great their faith was. And the rest of verse 11 says, Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it's been said that they gave him gold for his royalty, frankincense for his deity, and myrrh for his humanity. And their gifts were not in addition to their worship, but rather elements of their worship. Their gifts were an expression of worship given from overflowing, adoring hearts. And then we read in verse 12, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And then in verses 13 to 15, we have the flight into Egypt. We read, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so God revealed his will to Joseph through an angel in a dream, and and he was told by God to flee. And the word flee here is the Greek word from which we get our English word fugitive. One who escapes someone or something, and it, and it speaks of beginning an action that is to be continued. In other words, the angel told Joseph to take Mary and the baby and begin fleeing and not stop until they arrived in Egypt. I mean, that's, that's an intense warning. And Joseph was to go to Egypt and stay there until the Lord told him what to do next. It was about 75 miles to the border of Egypt and another 100 miles to somewhere they would be safe. So they had 175 miles to travel. But Joseph didn't hesitate. He immediately obeyed. And he rose and took the child, verse 14, and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now obviously it would take a, a large amount of money and provisions to make such a trip. But where did Joseph and Mary, who were, you know, dirt poor, you might say, get that kind of money? Well, God, who supplies all our needs, saw to it they had exactly what they needed. It was through the gifts of the wise men God provided the necessary finances for Mary and Joseph to make the trip, to remain in Egypt until he called them back, and for the return trip as well. And it's possible that the stay in Egypt until the death of Herod was uh, only a few months. We read now in verses 16 to 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so a furious Herod, thinking he had been tricked by the wise men, but they didn't trick him. They were simply obeying God who warned them in a dream. But Herod, in in his rage, ordered all the male children, two years old and younger, to be killed. I mean, it's hard to imagine that Herod would do such a thing. And especially in light of the fact that he apparently believed the child was, in fact, the Messiah. But he did. You see, such is the wickedness of the human heart. I suppose that we could say that those little babies were the first martyrs for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 19 to 21, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, where those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So God gave Joseph the direction he needed, and he wasted no time. He arose, it says, and and went to the land of Israel. We're not told that he questioned the Lord or even expressed his thoughts or opinions on the matter. God told Joseph to do something. He arose and immediately obeyed. So once again, we see the obedience of Joseph. 
And if Mary is an example of humble submission, and she is, then then Joseph would be an example of humble and immediate obedience. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So, in fulfillment of prophecy, through, uh, through providence, God's providential uh, actions, being warned in a dream, then Joseph took Mary and Jesus uh, to the city of Nazareth, and it was there that Jesus would grow up in fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Nazareth was a lowly, despised place. In fact, it was such a bad place that even the Roman soldiers refused to go there. They avoided it at all costs. The people of Nazareth, I mean, they were considered unsophisticated and crude, just a bunch of country bumpkins. But Jesus lived five-sixths of his life in Nazareth, working, it seems, as a carpenter with his earthly father, Joseph. Now, who ever heard of a king being born in the most humble surroundings, a place where livestock was kept in Bethlehem, and then, you know, being raised in a despised backwater place like Nazareth? I mean, who ever heard of a king living and working among the poor? Well, no one. But Jesus was no earthly king. That's why he didn't take an earthly title such as Jesus the Great or Jesus the Conqueror. Rather simply Jesus, a very common Hebrew name at that time. Jesus, which means Jehovah will save. Jesus didn't come to earth seeking an earthly kingdom. He came in humility and love to minister to the lost and dying, to the lowly and the outcast, to the sinner, those who recognize their sinfulness and their utter spiritual bankruptcy. But his ultimate purpose in coming was to die. He was born to die. It's not his birth that saves us. It's not his life that saves us. It's not his ministry that saves us. It is his death, his sin-atoning, substitutionary, atoning death. That's why he came. He came to die. The important issue of Christmas is, is not so much that Jesus came, but why he came. The Christmas story is about the birth of the Son of God. God be, became a man so that he might die. It's the only way, the only way that he could save us from our sin. And this is what we as Christians celebrate at Christmas. We lift our hearts and our voices in praise of God who came from the infinite distance and and glories of heaven down to a world such as ours, taking on full humanity in order that he might redeem us and lead us back to himself. And at Christmas, We don't worship a sentiment. We worship God. The baby in the manger isn't just a a cute and cuddly infant in his mother's arms. He is God in human flesh. God. So we could say that Christmas is not coming because it, it has already come. Right? The Word has already become flesh. He already has lived, bled, died, and risen again for us. Thank God he's coming again for us. So he's already come. He's made the way. He's paid the price. And now all that remains is to believe in him, isn't it? As John said, but to all who did receive him, in other words, who believed in his name. So to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. You know, this Christmas, I, I pray that God will give each one of us a greater appreciation of all that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The King of Grace came in grace to shed his grace upon us, that by grace through faith we might be saved. Let me ask you this something, something this morning. Have you, by grace through faith, trusted in Christ alone for salvation? I'm not asking whether you go to church. I'm not asking, you know, if you read your Bible or say prayers or raise your kids in a certain way. Because although those are things that Christians will surely do, uh, there are non-Christians who do those things all the time. So that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking you, have you by grace, through faith, trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? See, we all need God's grace. That's the only way we're ever going to get into heaven. By grace, through faith, in God's Son and His finished work upon the cross. And we all need God's grace. And you can have God's grace in spite of your failures. And you don't have to prove yourself. First of all, because you can't be good enough. None of us can be good enough. So you don't have to prove yourselves. And no matter what your past looks like, no matter what your present feels like, no matter where you've been or what you've done, the Lord Jesus Christ can save. That's good news. It's really good news. It's news that we should never get bored with. It's news that we should never get tired of hearing. Because it's such glorious good news. It's the only hope that we have. Christ is our only hope. What, are you going to put your hope in the political process? In politicians? You're going to put your hope in whatever political party is in the White House? You're going to put your hope in uh, people? You're going to put your hope in money? Possessions? Because all of those things absolutely will fail you. I love the hymn, and it expresses what we as Christians have our hope in. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You know, God's grace is available today to any and all who will simply humble themselves, turn to Christ, put their faith and trust in him alone for salvation. And if you've never trusted in Christ, I, I urge you, I plead with you this morning to put your faith and trust in him. Listen, uh, all roads don't lead to heaven. Good works don't lead to heaven. There's one way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by there's one way to a relationship with God, one way to heaven, and it is through having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. You can't trust in anything else other than Christ. Christ. And in him alone. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? The glorious news that Christ came. He became what he was not. He became a man. He was fully God and fully man at the same time and the same person. You say, well, can you explain that? No. We just know that it's true. And he lived a perfect, sinless life, the life that you and I could never live. And then he went to the cross and died the death that you and I deserve. Died, he died, was buried, rose again the third day, ascended to heaven, back to heaven after 40 days where he is today, seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for those who belong to him. 
And he invites you today, if you've never trusted in him, to do so. Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.